Right now we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible on some type of an electronic device, uh, if you're just super cool that way, uh, then uh, open it or tap over to 2 Samuel chapter 24. The topic we're going to find in that chapter, David foolishly orders a census of the army that results in a plague from God that takes the lives of 70,000 Israelites. The title of our message, Census and Sensibility. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) It's going to be one of those mornings. Do not text me anything funny. All right, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I know I say this a lot, but I'm I'm always amazed, Lord, that before the foundations of the world and before we were ever born, you saw each and every one of us sitting in this place on this day right now. And you knew everything about us. You understood our hearts better than we understand them. And you brought us here, Lord, to speak to us because you have a message for each and every one of us. It's a message of encouragement. It's a message to strengthen us. Certainly to challenge us, Lord, because we want to and need to be challenged. But more than anything, Lord, it's a message in which the the mirror of God's Word reveals more clearly the face and the heart and the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that having been exposed to it, having looked into the mirror of your word, we would go away changed as it is our desire to be and your great love for us to accomplish. And so we thank you for these things and ask that this word this morning would accomplish all your purposes, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and those who agreed said, Amen. Kidnapping for ransom is a common occurrence in various parts of the world. Certain cities and countries vie for the title kidnapping capital of the world. Mexico is on that list, having a kidnapping rate currently three times higher than Colombia's during its darkest period of drug violence. In 2009, the Los Angeles Times named Phoenix, Arizona, America's kidnapping capital, reporting that every year hundreds of ransom kidnappings occur there, virtually all of them associated with human and drug smuggling from Mexico. Kidnapping for ransom is such a common occurrence throughout history that the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of doctrine and laws compiled and written before the 8th century A.D. by Jewish rabbis, the Talmud indicates that part of a husband's marriage vows are to ransom his wife should she be kidnapped. I'm thinking of adding that to our standard vows. I'll do it. But anyway, (laughs) ransom was also required to purchase an individual out of another institution we're mostly unfamiliar with on a personal level, and that is slavery. Most of us live in relative safety from kidnapping and slavery. And that's obviously a good thing, except that we have lost an appreciation for the word ransom when it's used in the Bible to describe our salvation. It, It really doesn't have... A powerful impact on us. Jesus said of himself, 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom on behalf of many. Every original listener would have had a very strong reaction to the word ransom because everyone in Jesus' audience would have had some personal experience with either kidnapping or slavery. The Jews listening to Jesus would have had a further understanding of the word ransom. At the time of the exodus from Egypt, when God killed the firstborn of every house, the Jews were spared by sacrificing a lamb in place of their firstborn. It was considered a ransom. So when Jesus said he would give his life as a ransom, they would have connected it with the Passover and understood he was in some way identifying himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, by now you're asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with our text in 2 Samuel 24? No one is kidnapped, as far as we can tell. Well, King David ordered a census be taken. It resulted in a plague that in three days' time took the lives of 70,000 Jews. Listen now to this verse. It's from Exodus chapter 30. It's verse 12. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. You catch the use of the word ransom? David took a census, but he ignored the ransom price and he brought upon himself and Israel the judgment God had prescribed for such an act of blatant disobedience. Now, next you should be asking, what does any of this have to do with us? Well, if you're a Christian, according to Jesus, you've been ransomed by him. And so you and I need to return to an understanding of the strength of that word. It's a word that should move us in our hearts and move us to action. And so I'll organize my thoughts on this chapter around two points. Number one, the fact you were ransomed should affect the way you live. And number two, the fact you were ransomed should affect the way you give. Let's take a look first of all in verses, first, uh, verses 1 through 15 at the way you live. Now I want to make one simple point from these opening verses and it is this. It is all too possible to know God and to be serving Him but in a spirit of independence as if your life belonged to you rather than to the Lord who ransomed you. David is the example of that in our text. He was definitely a man of God and he was God's man for the job of king. Nevertheless, he would number the army independently of God's command to take a census as if the men belonged to him rather than to God. In other words, he just acted totally independently of God as if his life belonged to him and the lives of all the others and he could do whatever he wanted within the sphere of serving God. And so verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, the he of that verse is not who you might think. There is a parallel account of this episode. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I'll just read it to you. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 opens and it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. The writer of 2 Samuel seemed to assume everyone would understand that the he of verse 1 was Satan and that it could not be God since God tempts no one to do evil. And so we would read uh, with this 
extra information, 2 Samuel 24, 1, to say, And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and the devil, or Satan, moved David against them. Commenting on this, William MacDonald writes, Satan precipitated it, David performed it, God permitted it. God would use Satan to discipline David and Israel by permitting him to move David to take a census of the people. Verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. This was David's idea. God had not ordered a census. We're familiar with census taking, and we might think, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is at least two things. Uh, For one thing, numbering the people of Israel was seen as an act of ownership. Since God had ransomed them, He owned them, and only He could order them counted. Thing two, we read in Exodus 30, verse 12, that whenever there were counted, a, a ransom was to be paid to acknowledge that they belonged to God. And so this was a big deal. God hadn't ordered a census. David did. And when he did, he didn't even require the half shekel ransom. Notice, too, as we go on, David is really only interested in counting soldiers. His concern is with the relative military might or weakness of Israel. Now, verse 3, Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people 100 times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Joab was David's commander. He is a fierce warrior. Uh, He's the guy you want in any fight, at any level, with any weapon. Uh, If you've got Joab, you have a, a better than average chance of getting out alive. However, he was not really very spiritual as you look back upon his life, which makes it all the more meaningful that even he could see that this was a bad idea. His words indicate the census was being motivated by either David's fear or pride. Fear at having too few men for battle or pride at having built his original army of 400 misfits into something much greater. If Joab came to you and suggested you were not acting very spiritual, man, that's a wake-up call because this guy didn't have a spiritual bone in his body. It means that what was happening was so obviously sinful that anybody could see it. And yet David uh, was in a state in which he did not see it. Joab calls the census this thing. For the next almost ten months, all of Israel would be concentrated on this census. All on something God had not ordered and did not desire that could be called this thing that David had concocted. It made me wonder uh, if there's something that we might be doing that God would look at it and say, what is this thing? You know, because if we're not really sensitive to the leading of the Lord and to the direction of the Lord, uh, we, we could easily be involved doing things that are not really on the Lord's agenda for our personal lives or for our church. And though I might be excited about it or into it, if I brought it to the Lord, he would say, Gene, what's this thing? This is what I had you. Uh, did you hear me when I said I wanted you to do this and accomplish this? Yeah, I did, Lord, but I wanted to do this. And this is just kind of interesting. It's just a reminder to seek the Lord because a lot of times, as you know, there is a lot of stuff that you could be doing as a Christian. Tons of stuff. 
hundreds, maybe thousands of ministries that you could support, for example, or missions or missionaries. Lots of projects our whole church could get involved with. And sometimes, you know, I look at things and I, and, and I think, well, Lord, I want to do that. But the Lord just isn't leading. He hasn't made a provision or He's not leading or there's just a sense that this isn't what the Lord has for us. And, and we can push through, we can power through, we can get things done, but then the Lord would look at it. And even though it's a good thing, in, in one sense, He would say, Gene, what's this thing? I'm ready to empower you and strengthen you and bless you over here in what I've called you to do. I, I don't want you involved in this thing. This is someone else's thing. And this is why it's always so interesting that movements sweep through the church in the United States or other parts of the world where all the churches end up doing the same thing. Have you noticed that? It's not always wrong even, but it's interesting to me when all the churches in America are doing the same program. They're all doing the same thing. Is it led by the Lord? I'm not sure that God wants us all to do the exact same thing. It doesn't make sense to me. God forbid our serving the Lord would be some thing that we have concocted rather than the discovery of His will for our lives. Verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. So not just Joab, but there was criticism from the captains as well, but David ignored all of it. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. They crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadji. And they came to Dan Han uh, around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out to the south, uh, Judah, as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, I feel obligated to point out that in the parallel account in uh, Chronicles, uh, different numbers are given. Not to be alarmed, scholars have suggested several different likely solutions to what initially seems a contradiction. You know, people are always looking for contradictions in the Bible to try and prove that it's not the Word of God. Um, if people were trying to write a forgery, uh, they wouldn't choose different numbers at the same time because they're not that stupid. Uh, and so sometimes there's just different ways of quantifying things and putting numbers together. And so there's lots of good books on there that deal with supposed Bible difficulties I think Lisa and Archer has written one. They're fun reads, and you read it and you think, oh yeah, that's not a contradiction at all. It's just that we didn't understand something. So anyway, verse 10. David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David did not accuse God of tricking him or tempting him. He didn't object that God had permitted Satan to stand up against Israel and influence David to take the sinful census. No, David recognized that it was his sin and that he was personally responsible. Sure, God permitted the situation where the devil would come and tempt him, but David could have said no. He should have said no. He had Joab's advice. He had the advice of his captains. And then he had almost 10 months to change his mind. 
And the whole time he was ignoring the conviction of his heart until after it was done and now his heart condemned him and he owned up to his own personal responsibility. God permitted David to do what was in his heart in order to show him what was in his heart and to bring him to repentance. Verse 11, now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself uh, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. When we confess our sin, God immediately and eternally forgives us our sin. And that's a glorious thing. But our sin may yet have temporary consequences on the earth. They may affect those that we love and have contact with. David's did, and they were severe. The consequences were severe. Now, as to David's choice, he seemed to choose the consequence that would, first of all, put him and Israel into the Lord's hands rather than the hands of their enemies. And so David is appealing to God as a God of mercy and putting himself into his hands. Secondly, it was the shortest of the time periods in terms of judgment. Thirdly, It was the only consequence that also exposed David and his family to potential harm. Chances are that neither an extended famine nor a defeat by enemies would really affect palace life. But a plague was indiscriminate. So if you're David, if you're the king, the famine isn't going to really touch you. It's going to affect your people. And your army being chased around isn't going to affect you because you're no longer out leading the army. And so David put himself with his people. He said, I brought this upon them. I want to bear the consequences with them. I'll leave it to God to determine who is going to suffer this plague and include myself in that possibility. And fourthly, this happened to be the penalty that God warned would attend any census that failed to collect the required ransom. And so David seemed to be lining up with the scripture that he had totally ignored. God did not need ransom money. It wasn't much anyway, only a half shekel per man. It was a token to remind everyone that they were a ransom people. They had been slaves to sin, but they were now set free to serve the Lord as he prescribed. They'd been ransomed by the blood of lambs when God required the death of the firstborn. The half shekel reminded of that blood from the original Passover. And we know, too, that it pointed to the blood of the lamb yet to come. Jesus, who Paul describes in the New Testament as our Passover. What's more, the price indicated that this was a universal provision for the universal problem of sin. Rich or poor, all were equal on, uh, in God's sight. Everyone needed ransoming. And so God looked at the Egyptians, he looked at the Israelites, and he said, I require the death of the firstborn. Everyone needs to do this in order to be ransomed 
doesn't matter if you were rich or you were poor, you couldn't buy your way out of it, and you weren't so poor that you couldn't qualify, and all of it had to do with a substitute. Our application, remember, is that it is all too possible to know God, to be serving Him in a spirit of independence, as if your life belonged to you rather than to the Lord who ransomed you. If David could do it, then we can do it. You and I were slaves to sin, headed for death. Satan held us captive. The Lord bought us out from that slavery. He gave us his life as a ransom and whosoever would believe on him after us. We therefore belong to him. We believe we belong to him, but we don't always live like we belong to him. The course of our life, is it the one chosen for us by God or did we choose it? and are now merely asking Him to bless us along our way. When I ask questions like this, number one, I've already asked myself, or I am asking myself. Number two, it's just out there for you as an individual to look at and say, okay, I want to walk with the Lord. I want to know more about Jesus Christ. I want to be conformed into His image. So let me just honestly ask myself this question. And so, because it is, if we see that it's possible for David to walk independently of God and to bring himself into kind of a catastrophe, same thing with us. And so it may seem subtle, you know, maybe you're, you know, we think of people who are at the crossroads of their life and having to make a decision, you know, what do you want to do with your life kind of a thing? What are you going to be when you grow up? And there's, there's. Two approaches, they seem to be the same, but they're really very different. One is to seek the Lord and to find out what His path for our life is. Where are we supposed to be? Where are we supposed to live? What career? What opportunity? Those kinds of things. And just follow that. The other is to just do what we want to do, what we feel like doing based on some other things. And then as Christians, just say, well, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. And I want to take you along with me. Now, nobody actually says that because it would be an acknowledgement that, you know, we're being disobedient. But there's a subtlety in in our seeking the Lord sometimes. We really need to humble ourselves and say, hey, Lord, what is it that you have for me? Now, the the problem we have sometimes is that we don't believe that the Lord is going to give us the desires of our heart. And so we think, I want to do this, but the Lord, he wants me to grovel. He wants me to go to Africa. Unless you want to go to Africa, then he doesn't want you to go to Africa. You know what I mean? We always think that the Lord is mean and that he's not going to give you the desire of your heart. Here's the thing. You don't know the real desires of your heart. Those of you who are raising or have raised children, as a parent, you have a fantastic, humbling responsibility to bring your children to a point of making certain wise life decisions. And you can look at their life and say, you know, when you get to this point, You're going to want to be in this condition in order to really experience the fullness and the richness of life and and the things that really give joy. But along the way, your kids are always fighting you because they want the temporary joy and the temporary excitement. They're they're going here and they're going there and they, they, you know, if left alone, like so many kids are, they think that they have the desire of their heart to be over here with these 
friends and to get high and to do these things and those things and to experiment with this and that. But when they get to a certain point, you know that they're going to look back and think, man, I've ruined my life. I I just, why did I do all of those things when I really, this is the desire of my heart. And so good parents mold and shape and train their children to get them to that point. The Lord does the same thing with us. And so I might think, Lord, this is what I want to do. I want to do it right now. And you're going to do it with me. Or I could say, Lord, I don't have a clue as to where my life would find the most meaning and value. I have an idea, some ideas, you know, of my own in, in terms of leading and all that, but I really want to make sure that it's you. And, you know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with making sure that you're where God wants you to be? Now, I'd like to think most of us are on the path the Lord has chosen for us. If that's the case, we need to check ourselves to make sure that we're really serving Him in the place that He's called us to be? Or are we off doing this thing or that thing that really have nothing to do with His plan for our lives? Here's one test. There's a lot of different things you could do to test yourself. But here's one test that we can take. When's the last time you did something radical that God asked you to do? I mean, you can't read too far into the Gospels or the book of Acts without seeing God call upon His followers to do something radical that was outside of their normal comfort zone. I'm not talking about something foolish and ridiculous, something radical, something spirit-led that requires the Lord to fill your heart and life. If we aren't doing anything like that, or it's been a long, long time since we have been moved by God to do something like that, perhaps we need to consider that we are counting and counting on His blessings, but really living to please ourselves. Instead, let's get back to asking the Lord to reveal His plans so that we can walk in them. Now, in verses 16 through 25, the fact you were ransomed should affect the way you give. Again, one simple point to make from this section, and it's this. When I am living as I ought to be, it is reflected in my attitude towards giving to the Lord. And so verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, I have done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now, David asked the Lord why he was destroying the people when it was he and his house who were guilty. God's reply given through Gad, go erect an altar on the threshing floor of Arana. And if you look at that, it's really not an answer. It's just a command. So David has a question and God has a command. God may not directly answer you in certain situations, but if you will obey him, you will discover that he is using those situations for his deeper, richer purposes in your life. And so we're always looking for an answer 
Usually it's a yes or no answer or an explanation. You know, we want God to explain something to us. God, this doesn't make sense that in David's case, you know, if I sin, then why are you killing people? And, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And God just ignores David's question and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and do this. And David erecting this altar doesn't answer that situation. Uh, God is not obligated to answer our questions or to give us explanations, but we love it that he would reveal himself in a deeper, more meaningful way. And so he uses the situations in our life to do that. And so if if you've been asking God to explain something to you, when I ask God to explain things, I have to remember that I probably wouldn't understand it. There's probably too many factors involved for me to hold in my brain. When you think of all the possible connections from the past and from the future and all the things that are going on in everyone's life, how could I understand the plan of God in one particular aspect of it? I can't. And so I just need to obey God. He's gotten me to a place where I'm questioning so that I can listen to him. And he can say, well, Gene, this is where I want you to go and this is what I want you to do. Uh, And... From there, I can get into a deeper place with him. Now, verse 20. Now, Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. You know, we always want to put ourselves in Bible stories and say, you know, which character would I have been or which character do I want to be? And I was thinking about this. There are a few Aranas in the body of Christ and what a blessing they are. They generously give of their time and of their talent, of their finances. They're always willing to give. They're always ready to give. They're always giving. They're a blessing. But there are also those who are perfectly willing to ride along on the offerings of the Aranas. I mean, it, put yourself in this story and David comes and he says, I need, you know, I'm going to buy this threshing floor and I need to make a sacrifice here. And Arana says, well, great, I'm giving it to you and I'll give you everything that you need. If, you, if, I'm, if it's me, I'm thinking, hey, praise the Lord, it doesn't cost me anything. This is a good deal, right? I mean, this is, this is good business. So you go to make an offering, you go to make a sacrifice, you go to meet with the Lord, and you find there are people who are going to do everything for you. They're going to give you everything. They're going to provide everything for you. Hey, I'm in. This Christian thing is easy. And then David says, oh no. That, how can I give to God? Or we would say, how can I think I'm worshiping God When I give him nothing and I depend upon what other people give him. Wow. That's pretty heavy. And the truth, the sad truth is, 
In most churches around the world, the vast majority of, of the people have that second attitude. They come and they think, well, I, I don't have enough money, I don't have any time, I don't have any talent, there's really nothing that I can give to the Lord, I'm just thankful that other people give to the Lord so that I can soak up the benefits and the blessings and use the ministry and utilize the ministry and do all these things. Uh, that's a pretty good deal. But David is teaching us that that's not worship. It's something, but it's not worship. So if the bottom line here, if the take-home lesson is, nor will I offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing, the spiritual question to ask here is, what is it costing me, if anything, to serve the Lord? It must cost you something because it costs God everything to ransom you and to save you. What's interesting about this, I think what will really grip your heart is this, Arana's threshing floor was located on Mount Moriah. That's the place, you remember, where Abraham climbed with his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. It was there Abraham would understand what it cost for God to ransom him and to save him. You remember the story, Abraham was just about to offer Isaac, just about to kill him. The knife was raised and then God stayed Abraham's hand from actually killing Isaac. Instead, he provided himself a ram in the place of Isaac. By the way, I was watching something the other night. It was, uh, it's a bunch of atheists who have problems with Christianity and think Christianity is terrible and brutal and all this stuff. And they always talk about Abraham offering Isaac and how brutal it was, this idea of human sacrifice. Well, Abraham didn't kill Isaac. And they miss the point. They have no understanding of the symbolism of what was taking place. Because when God said through Abraham to Isaac, Isaac said, hey, dad, uh, here's the wood and there's some fire and we're going to build. An, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said prophetically, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. And then when they got up there, God provided a ram for the sacrifice, but he was giving them a prophecy of what would happen some centuries later. God would literally provide himself. It was in this same area, on these same hills, that Jesus Christ would be crucified. It was there that he would be offered as the final lamb, sufficient to save all who trust in him for eternal life. It was there that Jesus died. And so what God is doing with Abraham, and he's saying, Abraham... You know, your son, who, I mean, anybody can understand, I mean, the, the, to, to, really, you want me to sacrifice my son who I love? But beyond that, every promise that God had made to Abraham was in Isaac. Nothing could come true if Isaac was dead. And God said, I want this from you. I want to know if you trust me and love me enough to go through with this sacrifice. And Abraham would have. But God stopped him. And then God, I don't know how much Abraham understood, but we understand that God was saying, what I kept Abraham from doing, I did myself. I brought my son to Calvary and I killed him so that the world might live. And what people look at and they say, oh, brutal, what a terrible religion. We understand to be the greatest act of love in the universe that God would become a man, that he would die in my place and in your place, rising from the dead, that I might live forever. Now, that's not brutality. That's love. It cost God something 
to offer that salvation. And if I love God, and if I am worshiping God, it's going to cost me something, but it's going to be beautiful in the sacrifice because I'm going to recognize I'm a ransomed person. Everything I have and everything I am belongs to God, so if He would ask me for any of it, why would I withhold it? Now let me close this part about our giving by saying this. You and I are supposed to be encouraged by both Arana's generosity and David's philosophy. Be an Arana. Be someone who is always ready to give because it's good. Because you understand you've been ransomed and that everything you have, it really does belong to God anyway. And so be listening to Him and looking for ways not to give less, but to give more and more and more of your time and of your talent and of your treasure. And then be a David, not a pre-census David, but a David after he had come to his senses, someone who is joyful, realizing that a ransomed person takes every opportunity to sacrifice time and talent and money to the Lord who bought them and that they would never consider it a sacrifice. Though we're to give sacrificially, there's a sense in which we understand it's not a sacrifice. Because why? Because we're ransomed. Because we were slaves. Because we were slaves to sin and on our way to death. And then Jesus gave it all for us that we might live. Do what the Lord tells you to do. What He puts on your heart. Do it joyfully, sacrificially, generously. Let's pray.